every Everton fan that I've ever spoke to over the years fully appreciates what he's given the club probably over the last 15 years. I don't think there's been a player that's given more than Seamus Coleman. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Hello and welcome back to Off The Ball. Now we're going to launch into our Sunday paper review. Uh, We will be joined by Mick O'Keefe and Michael Verney for this, which is very exciting for my first ever Sunday paper review on Off The Ball. So glad to be joined by the lads. Um, But before we get into that, we're going to do a quick rundown of what is on all the back pages. Unsurprisingly, Manchester City and Arsenal yesterday, absolutely dominant. Um, I think Manchester City showing the abs- the champions that they are. Um, we have Chelsea and Liverpool live comms on Off The Ball later with both sides trying to catch up with Pep Guardiola's side. But uh, I think judging by these back pages, <laughs> we, we know that that may be a lot harder than you think. Uh, the Observer has it down as 11 heaven. Rodri's injury time winner means City start 2022, 11 points clear and shatters an Arsenal side angry at VAR decisions. Uh, another common theme throughout the papers today has been those VAR decisions. Sunday Times also goes with a picture of a shirtless Robbie Rodri saying, put your shirt on City. Uh, late Rodri winner puts champions 11 points clear at the top. That 11 featuring quite a lot. Um... We have when the Sunday Mirror, we have Hand of Rod after his 96th minute goal. I think uh, Arsenal fans, after the absolute effort that they put the team put in for those final 30 minutes, would have been quite devastated. So, so interesting. I think it was the first time I'd ever seen at the Emirates uh, Arsenal fans actually throwing stuff onto the pitch. Not normally the sort of anger that you expect to see in the Emirates, um, especially with Arsenal fans often being accused of not being A, the most supportive or B, the most lively of fans. Um, we also have Tupet, Happy New Year, Love VAR. That's the Sunday People's Sport. And they also have a front page story Alba the Tune, which is shock bid for Arsenal striker Aubameyang with Newcastle finalising deal for 34 million Atletico star Trippier. Um, so I'd say that will be one that Arsenal fans will be very interested in, especially considering Aubameyang's... Uh, general disciplinary issues and wasn't in the team yesterday either gunners in ref justice is on the back page of the sun sport and then they also go for a joint back page with rage against the machine tuchel fired up chasing champs and so thomas tuchel was admitted that chelsea are struggling to keep up with manchester city's winning machine but despite that he has also said that he thinks that between himself and Klopp they have the experience from Germany to get past uh, well not even get past just even reach Man City at this point they are as we said 11 points ahead bit of a change in the Sunday Independent it's the only one that kind of leads with Connacht's happy new year Connacht beating as we heard in our news round with Amory there um, Munster 10-8 last night in the sports ground very entertaining match we will be talking to Gavin Duffy about it in a bit more detail later on in the show and they also have irate Gunners cry foul in, in, over inconsistent VAR so as you can see very much led off the Premier League no doubt that the papers tomorrow will also be quite interested in uh, the result of Chelsea-Liverpool considering its implications for 
than the title race, or the run ahead of the title is probably <laughs> a better way of putting. Uh, but now I am joined by Michael Verney and Mick O'Keefe. Thanks for joining, lads. Happy New Year to you both. Hope you're getting Happy on well. Happy New Year. Yeah, good. Same thanks. Thanks. Yeah, Happy not too bad at all. <laughs> I was just thinking this morning as I was sitting down, I had like the desk completely covered in papers. I don't actually remember the last time I sat down and read through as many papers as I have this morning. And it was a really nice way to kick off my new year. I think I might start doing it a bit more. Um, but there was a lot of stuff in the papers today. And I suppose one of the main themes throughout all the papers was the kind of year in review and also looking ahead to the year of sport. We had an A to Z in the mail on GA Kimmage and Sweeney in the Sunday Independent and then also Pat Spillane in the Sunday World. So I suppose, which one of those for you guys really caught your eye? If we go to you first, Mick. Yeah, sure. Hiya. Um, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm kind of drawn to Eamon Sweeney a bit. Like, I suppose the, the look back of 2021, which was a mad year, really, when you think about um, the kind of put 18 months worth of sport into 12 months with the Euros and, um, and the Olympics and so on. So... Um, Kevin uh, Paul Kimmage has a, a kind of a look back where he pulls out some of his highlights of the year. But a lot of that's been kind of covered already. Um, Sweeney, I think, kind of hits the nail in the head when you're, you're looking ahead. Kind of, it's almost like doing your your New Year um, resolutions. You look ahead, but I think from a sporting perspective, it's so difficult to predict what's going to happen with the in and out nature of COVID. But um, and same um, Shane McGrath, the male, talks about this kind of you know these bursts of freedom that we get as sports fans where we can go to the Aviva in November and then, you know, there's no sport for a few weeks in December. So you kind of nearly take it. You, you need to take it when you can get it. But Eamon Swinney for me is is really good and it kind of really gets you excited for the year ahead despite all the issues that we're experiencing at the moment. So, you know, you look at the year that's coming, um, even the, the stuff that repeats itself every year, like a Six Nations, looks like it's going to be a brilliant Six Nations. You have uh, Winter Olympics coming up. You've got Cheltenham, which... You got Rachel Blackmore going again for 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 more record-breaking success, um, and you know you kind of forget that Qatar twenty two is happening this year, so we're going to have a very unique soccer World Cup um, in in the Middle East, you know, and then everything else in between, you know, there's all these little subtext next year, you know, you got Gaelic football, which have become quite predictable, but the Dubs is now completely open, you know, with Kerry Tyrone look like a team that's going to hang around for a while. You know, the dubs will they come back? What kind of situation are they in? You've got Hurling, you've got the Henry Shefflin going to Galway piece. Stephen Kenny, is he going to get his new contract? Leona Maguire, the women's soccer team. So there's buckets and buckets to look forward to. Um, and and I think, you know, from a from a sports fan's perspective, like it's this time of year where you start getting really excited about what's gonna what's coming up and what you like to go and see. So yeah, Eamon Sweeney, you know, as he calls it, predicting the unpredictable. So sport anyway is unpredictable to predict, but in a year where there's the in and out and that kind of those bursts of 50,000 people in Aviva followed by, you know, 5,000 people allowed into crowns, you kind of really need to take it when you can get it, um, which I think made the the Ireland kind of Portugal soccer match and the Ireland-New Zealand um, rugby match even more memorable. But I think he's definitely worth the read. Um, and I think Shane McGrath for kind of a longer piece on the whole COVID unpredictable, un- unpredictability thing as well is, is, is also worth looking at. It has been weird because I think you get to this stage of the year and for most people they're winding down whereas if you're involved in sports you have this dual thing of everyone around you is chilling and your year is almost just ramping up a little bit more because you have these sort of review pieces and then you have the look aheads and the excitement and it's like you're saying there about the 2022 World Cup I keep forgetting that that's even a thing this year because there seems to be so much more happening before I mean even in England you have the European the Women European Championships which is barely mentioned across any of the papers and maybe 
obviously not so much the Irish ones because we aren't sadly competing in it but I thought there would have been a bit more of a build up to it even the other night when they had the fireworks on BBC they had a special you know London 22 women's heroes I was surprised not to see that more across the English papers but for you Michael what was which of the reviews kind of stuck out to you as being a little bit different I agree with Mick in terms of the Eamon Sweeney one I thought there was some more interesting ones there than maybe in some of the other papers which were kind of going over points that we've seen a few times yeah, yeah, there's, I, lots, of, I, there's lots of interesting things across it, and it was just the, the fact that, like, he mentions ice skating, he mentions horse racing, there's so many different bits covered in it. Um, and just the interesting thing at this time of the year is for every athlete, for every team, for every person, like, nothing is unachievable at this time of the year. Everything is achievable at this time of the year. It's a time of the year that we can all dream, and I think it's a time of the year the fans can dream. I, I work in horse racing, and, and you know, I'd often you'd preview a race, and like nobody can be wrong before the event, but very, very quickly, people are wrong after the event, and it happens to me on a regular basis, as I'm sure it happens to a lot of people. And that's, I suppose, the nice thing about this time of the year is that you make a prediction, everybody's entitled to their opinion. Um, Eamon has made some uh, fairly broad and far-reaching uh, predictions maybe in this, but just even just looking back at 2021, like if you were looking through, looking into your, your, your globe, looking at what 2021 lay in store, there's no way you would have said that like Rachel Blackmore would do, you know, a couple of things that were just not on any woman's radar, let alone on any, you know, uh, any male jockey's radar six winners at the Cheltenham Festival the, the first woman to be leading jockey at Cheltenham Festival history the first woman to win you know the most famous steeplechase in race in history in the entry Grand National and she's achieved so much more since then you couldn't have predicted that you probably wouldn't have predicted that Dublin would fall in football you probably wouldn't have predicted that Dublin would fall in ladies football and that Mead ladies football would rise um, you probably wouldn't have predicted that you know, you know the, the two lads winning gold uh, in the in the Rhone, uh, Paul O'Donovan and Finbar McCarthy, that they would nearly be overlooked by so much overlooked maybe by Kelly Harrington's achievements or by Katie Taylor's achievements or by Rachel Blackmore's achievements. And I think that's just what's so interesting about this time of the year. Everybody can dream at this time of the year, and us as journalists, we can dream about you know and predict what we'd love to see happening or what we think might happen in 2022 we don't really know but we'll try and make an educated guess and i think that's what Eamon sweeney has tried to do well on the back of the cindo today yeah it's almost like the covid effect has added an extra layer of excitement so you just don't know you know every time i had talk about manchester city and the likelihood of them winning the league being 11 points ahead you do kind of have to put that little asterisk there of if you don't get a major injury crisis or if you don't get a major COVID crisis in the club. Um, I thought the A to Z in the mail on the GA was interesting, especially off the back of the news today about Stephen Cohen being given the captaincy um, at Mayo. And there is a proper list of pieces throughout the whole. It's a two-page spread, uh, goes through everything from... Dublin, can they come back to Mayo? What can we expect from them from next year? But what in that was the thing that really struck out to you, Mick? Well, I suppose um, I, I, I have a seven-year-old son, right? And he went to two Dublin matches um, ever in his life. And one was the All-Ireland semi-final against Mayo last year. And one was the women's final against Meath. And they lost them both. So he thinks Dublin never win it. <laughs> so, he'll he'll take... soon learn, Mick. Don't worry. He'll soon learn. <laughs> <laughs> just to kind of just to kind of tell him no it's not always like this um yeah for me like i i, I think look, there's there's a there's a good bit in that eight to z i really enjoyed it actually um 
you know, uh, Tyrone getting a lot of plaudits, Vicky Wall, I think the whole Mead thing was really interesting. Um, I think from a Dublin perspective, you know, it was a very strange year. Like, you had this big Stephen Cluxton question mark all year, which I hope has now kind of been put to bed. Um, and then obviously you had the the situation with the training in the in the middle of lockdown last year as well. Um, they're kind of covered off here. Um, you know, they talk about the end of an era for for the dubs and so on. But I think you'd be brave to kind of write Dublin off completely. Um, you know, and then Lee Keegan, all these, you know, all this kind of stuff in here. So yeah, no, it's it's really good. It's worth it's worth a flick through because it kind of rattles through it quite quickly. Um, you've touched on the Mayo bit as well already and that kind of changing the guard, although they always seem to be changing the guard and still knocking around. So you know, you have to give them some kind of credit. And then the other story as well that uh, Michael didn't touch on, um, and it is touched on here under why, which I thought for me was, you know, me ladies for me was a fantastic story and they were just so brilliant in the final. And I didn't give them any chance, I'm going to be honest, going into that match. But why is for young guns, um, and it's, it's about the awfully under 20s, um, it was not just the unexpected nature of Offaly's under twenty one uh, win, but it was the you know really thrilling kind of game and kind of style of football that they played. And I think for people involved in Gaelic games, it's great to see these success stories because you know it does get repetitive and it's very hard to kind of keep it going when you've got the same teams winning all the time. So Offaly coming in for me and that kind of look back in the year and me in the ladies as well as obviously Tron and everything else that happened. That was a really sensational kind of breakthrough and a sensational win. Yeah, there's some great coverage of it on Off the Ball. I was very much enjoying uh, just the, I think it's that thing when you get people that haven't experienced that sort of success before, it just lifts you and it buoys you. And if you have no connection to the team whatsoever, you suddenly find yourself, Shannon, you mentioned teams like Mead Ladies. I never in my life shouted for Mead ladies, but during those <laughs> matches, I was like, oh. and I think it was actually purely because Ashley O'Reilly on off the ball. She was so passionate about it. I think everyone else couldn't help but join in. Uh, I also thought one of the kind of bit more funny ones on the A to Z was a zzz for how sleepy yeah. some of the uh, county <laughs> finals were. And it, interesting as well, considering the fact that we did have that Congress where things were trying, they did try to change things up, wasn't passed. So we are kind of looking into another year of well, hopefully not as sleepy matches. We've kind of gone from no, the highs. It's, it's, a, it's a really good point, right? And, and, and you know, you watch club matches here um, for people who are involved in, in GA and some of the, the games have gone so dour and negative. Um, and you also had a situation last year, and this was covered in some of the other pieces, um, with the two Connex semifinals. You have these drubbings in the provincial championships and you know, this momentum for change, I, I think the the failure, for a better way of saying it, of the, the proposal B, as they called it, may actually have been the best thing that ever happened because I think there's going to be a big momentum around change. And I know there's a committee that's been set up again, and I wouldn't be surprised to see really a kind of a better version of proposal B come forward in the next few weeks um, because, you know, I think when you look at Gaelic games or Gaelic football, it's the only... Gaelic code, GA code, that's not graded. Um, and there isn't 32 senior counties, right? And, and you know, you look at Hurling with 10 teams of more or less equal standard or, you know, in a round and how fantastic a competition that is. Ladies football is graded. Camogie is graded. So I actually think a, a sensible way to link the leagues to the, to the provincial championships into a kind of a World Cup or Champions League style summer football championship and an A and B championship, whatever way you want to brand it and call it, 
I think it's way overdue at this stage and all the arguments against not doing it, you know, uh, you know, if you can keep some form of competitiveness in provincial championships, I think that would be the best thing that would happen Gaelic football in 30 years since the back door came in because it's way overdue, you know, and everyone's sick of these, you know, the Mayo Leitra match, I think was the, the one in the semi-final, if I'm not mistaken, where, you know, just these big drummings and it's not doing anybody any good. Um, and I think you're taking it again in, I think Gaelic football has improved dramatically at the latter end. You know, some of the finals have been really good. But you do watch some of the club matches and you see very negative tactics and, you know, two all at half time and stuff like that. And it's turning people off. Um, but I do think, though, that that big change at, at inter-county level will hopefully bring, you know, really vibrant summer football championships um, and a predictability around fixtures as well, which is, which is badly needed. Yeah, and one I want to mention on this as well is O, which is for over and out. We've seen quite a few big names retire this season. You have Mayo legend Colin Boyle. You also have the likes of All-Ireland winners Philly McMahon and Kevin McMenamon. Obviously massive players in their time and also very much of that All-Ireland Dublin era that was so dominant for so long. Michael, what sort of miss will these players be for Mayo and Dublin? Yeah, the Sun did a lovely kind of a pull-out in the middle of their pay, or not in the middle, of the middle of their sports section, just going through some of the big names that are missing. You look at Philly McMahon from the Dubs, Keno Sullivan, Kevin McManaman, and then on the hurling front, you have Brendan Maher from Tip, Kevin uh, Kevin Moore, Joe Canning, obviously, Colin Fenley, Owen Cadigan, Paddy McGrath from Donegal, Tommy Walsh, Kerry, Colin Boyle, Mayo. That's just to mention probably the big names that are missing. And like that is a lot of big kind of marquee names missing Ferris, probably the vast majority uh, would have been maybe going towards the fringes maybe in recent years. But I think with, with the dubs, I think particularly with big names like that, particularly Philly Mack, Keno Sullivan and Kevin McManaman missing, missing, it's it's not so much maybe what they bring on the pitch at this stage. It's what they bring in the dressing room. It's what they bring to the training field. It's the experience that they bring to the dressing room. Same with Colin Boyle and Mayo. So it's it's going to be interesting to see, particularly the dubs. It's mad to say that you know a, a team that was going for uh, a team that was going for seven in a row could potentially be in transition now. But that's kind of what it looks like, and you've got a lot of experienced players gone out the door. So I think one of the things looking to 2022 that we're looking you know with real interest at is what are the dubs going to bring in 2022? The last time they were beaten in the championship before 2021 was the 2014 semi-final and they didn't lose a championship game for six years after. Are we going to see something like that? Or are we going to see... It, it probably looks a bit more realistic that they will bounce back, but I don't expect them to go on the run like they did after 2014. But those big faces missing are definitely going to have a big impact on their dressing room. Um, and it's going to be it's not going to be a new Dublin team because we've seen those tra- those transitions and those changes in recent years but it's definitely going to still be a bit different I think those faces missing from the changing room and around the squad and as guiding hands around the shoulders of young players it's definitely going to have a big impact mm. and yeah, at... I think oh go sorry. ahead no I, 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 it's, it's an interesting one because the Dubs if you take that you know golden decade or whatever like the only players left from that connection with the original team which I would say is 2010 when Dublin started to come, you know, is um, Mick Fitzsimons was in around that time um, and um, James McCarthy. So it is, it's it's in its fourth or fifth generation, this Dublin panel. Like I I do feel COVID had a huge impact on on a team that was already on the road five or six years. And while they did win that All-Ireland, you know, talking to some of the players about that, like the, the lack of enjoyment 
in playing high level sport that year, getting into your car in wet gear, going home, you know, playing in an empty stadia, you know, that kind of I think was the the the, the end of end of it for a few of them. And then I suppose you want to hang on for the last All Ireland, you know. So Dublin losing was that kind of natural break. Um I, I you know for that team. And I think there's no shock that a lot of those fellas have walked away. Um I think it's a huge year for for Dublin this year because you know, you look at Kerry, like one year can become four years and five years and six years and seven years, but these All-Ireland, you know, the breaks between winning All-Irelands can get quite long quite quickly. Um, I have felt over the last couple of years, though, that the gap between Dublin and most of the other teams is, has shortened. So, you know, you've got Kerry under Jack O'Connor next year. Mayo are always kind of knocking around. Throne have really kind of established themselves. So Dublin will be better this year, and I think they will bounce back with more energy because they have that little bit of hunger of losing and, the, you know, I suppose the lack of enjoyment of winning and, you know, is, it, you know, when you get that kick in the teeth, you know, you come back stronger. Is it going to be enough? I don't know because you get to the last four and it's, there's a kick of a ball in it between all the, between all the teams. But I think this year's the first year you're looking at it going, you know, you can ask those 10 pundits in the paper who they think is going to win and you probably get 10 different answers or six or seven different answers anyway. Whereas, you know, for a number of years there, there was only one team that people were predicting to win which isn't great. And I know it's brilliant from a Dublin fan perspective, but it's not great for everyone else. You want that bit of unpredictability about the championship. And I think this year it's going to be really exciting and there's going to be loads of different subtexts and plots. And, and it's the last year of this particular structure of championship, you would think. So yeah, loads to look forward to there. Is it unfair of me to throw it on you then and ask who do you think could be in line to win it? <laughs> well, Mick has to say Dublin anyway. As a, as a former Dub, you have to say it, Mick. No, I, I, I think at this look, I, I think um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say Kerry, um, and that's not me doing a double Yara on it at all. <laughs> I actually think um, they have a brilliant young team that have been knocking on the door for quite some time, and they have the motivation, um, I, and I think they'll be really, really hard to beat when they get to the latter end of the, of the championship. Um, new manager, new momentum, all that kind of stuff. I think Tyrone were absolutely brilliant last year, and they showed you know, under new management, what they could do. And they're young and, and the dubs obviously are going to be there thereabouts. So I don't think there's anything between those three. Um, but if you put a gun to my head, I would say Kerry, just simply because I think their need is so big. Um, and for them to go the, the length of time that they've gone um, with that and then have this young team that everyone thinks is going to win All-Ireland, but it's just taking a bit of time for them. So I'm going to go Kerry for next year. I think it's really interesting, Kathleen. I don't think all Ireland champions have ever come in to the new year with less expectation than Tyrone probably have. And it's, it's a strange one. That's just the way it worked out with, with the COVID crisis that they had. And like, they weren't favourites going into the All-Ireland against, against Mayo. They won All-Ireland in the first year of having Fergal Logan and Brian Dewar in charge. Maybe got a bit of a bounce um, after Mickey, Mickey Hart's reign. No more than Mickey Hart got a bit of a bounce in, his, in the first year of his reign when they won All-Ireland. But they're coming in um, they're only going to get better. They're a perfect age profile. Um, you would say, as regards tactics and styles of play, you know they won't have been fully bet into a new style of play, but yet they still won in All Ireland. That's I think that's really interesting. See what Jack O'Connor does in Kerry, uh, coming back for his you know his third coming at this stage is going to be really interesting. Um, the Dubs is the really interesting one for me though. I, I can't wait to see how they bounce back. I know Jim Gavin and his selectors met, I think it was the next day in the Gibson after being beaten in 2014 for a four or five hour debrief through the Donegal game and, and look at the blueprint that they created thereafter. So it'll be interesting to see if Desi Farrell has done something similar. I, I'd expect the Dubs to bounce back. I don't think they'll bounce back and win five or six in a row, but they might, might bounce back and win 2022 anyway. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. You almost think that with Tyrone, with the way they won the All-Ireland and the way they're going into this next one, that they were kind of saying themselves afterwards that they, you know, people wouldn't underestimate them in the way they did for that final. But it seems to be that they are and that and maybe, again, it is that classy thing because it's an Ulster team as well and Ulster teams tend to always be viewed slightly outside of the circle of All-Ireland chat, even if Tyrone is probably one of the names that is mentioned. But it, it always comes after the, the Dublins and the Mayos and the Kerrys of the country. So it'll be interesting to see for like the rest of the season and as the league happens and as we kind of get a better idea of how these teams are shaping up, how they will actually adjust and will the journalists and the pundits and the fans start to take notice of it a bit more. Um, We're going to go to a quick ad break, but we will be back shortly with more of the Sunday Paper Review. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. And we are back with you with our Sunday paper review. All the live football matches have just kicked off in the two o'clock Premier League kickoffs and it's nil all across the board, but we will be keeping an eye on those and bring you any goals that do happen. I suppose it's a good opportunity as well to stick with the Premier League. As I said, when I was doing the reading of the back page is very much dominated by Arsenal and Man City. Um, absolutely devastating result for Arsenal. You could see it on the players' faces whenever the game ended. And as I said earlier, like it was unusual to see Arsenal fans quite so unhappy with a match. Normally you don't get them throwing things onto the pitch and stuff. Um, but do you think this is as... Uh, I think it's the Observer said 11 heaven for Man City for the rest of the season, Mick. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. I, I think the the football coverage or soccer coverage is dominated by the two viruses, which is the COVID virus and then the virus of VAR, which seems to dominate all the headlines. Um, I think City got out of jail yesterday. Like, you know, they're probably by far and away the best team in the league at the moment. They get the bounce of the ball yesterday you know you have that kind of momentum so it's very hard to see past them um some really interesting stuff on on VAR as well like I know it can be a bit of a tired topic sometimes but I think yesterday threw up the one thing about VAR that people forget is it's still open to interpretation and human error so you know whether people go to VAR or whether how people see things on in slow motion and from action replays one person can view it differently to another so there's never going to be a 100% correct um, way of doing this. But, you know, some of the more balanced views in this, just um, Oliver Holt in the Daily Mail is worth a read on this, page 74 of the Mail on Sunday, sorry. Um, and he's a big advocate of, of VAR, but he, he talks about, look, the mistakes that were made in an Arsenal City match yesterday. He said, you know, for those of us in, um, of us who were and still are in favour of VAR, Adwell's decision not to award a penalty, this is the penalty for, for Arsenal, I felt exactly like the kind of innocent mistake the system was intended to correct and so on and so on. And that kind of makes sense. Um, and again, you know, you come to the the end of, you know, the end of the article and, and it kind of sums it up lovely. So look, it's a shame it was, this game was hijacked by, by a refereeing controversy. VAR was supposed to stop all this. It's about time it was allowed to do its job. So it really depends which way you look at this. But if you're looking at the season ahead, you know, it looks like it's Man City's to lose. Um, you know, who's you know, you, you can't see, you know, such substantial changes in the pecking order, you know, um, between now and the end of the year, unless the Liverpool or Chelsea go on a big run and City lose their way. But it does look like it's cities to lose, and you know, it has a kind of a, a boring inevitability about it in some respects because they're just so good. 
I think boring inevitability is something you can definitely say about this. And it was something that we were talking about on Wednesday um, during the show, just like looking ahead to some of these games. So the fact that Manchester City, the years that they do win the league, just seem to be so unmemorable because you don't have that. I don't think people get the same excitement around a Man City win or even the same anger, depending on who the opposing fan is, as they do if it's a Liverpool or a Chelsea or United or Whispers and Arsenal one day long ago. But... <laughs> I think the combination of like most of the papers carry the comments um from Arsenal over like their anger, you know, Aaron Ramsdale giving off about the inconsistency. And the thing about it was they weren't necessarily angry with the decision. I think it was just the option that Stuart Apple took not to or that VAR told him not to go over to the pitch side monitor for the earlier Arsenal clash. I mean, I studied law and I always find it really interesting how people approach VAR I work with Dale Johnson who's a bit of a a whiz when it comes to VAR you see his Twitter threads on the thing every single weekend I don't know how he keeps up with it all but it, it is this thing of jargon and language and consistency and I just wonder if that I agree that VAR isn't doing the job that it should be, but is it just that we're not educating the referees right in the first place and also the fans to fully understand what's going on? I don't know how you feel about that, Michael. Yeah, that happens a lot of the time, Kathleen, when things are not rushed through, but when things are brought through quite quickly. No more than... um... The more than in hurling last year, say when the when the black card was brought in or the sim bin was brought in, and all of a sudden you have a you know a big contentious decision when Tipperary play Clare, and maybe it's that referees haven't had enough time to implement the rules. And similar with VAR, you would imagine by now they've had enough time to make sure that it's almost foolproof. But it clearly isn't based based on yesterday. And I think as Aaron Ramsdale said, the big thing is just a lack of consistency that you just like uh, games are going to be stopped for minutes at different stages now. So like to make sure to, to be sure to be sure, as we'd always say, like like just go and check it just to make sure that it is exactly as you think it is. And um, if there's any doubt, you have to have a look and you just need to take that. Just need to take that kind of any sort of middle ground there where there's a dodgy area or some dodgy decision that could define a game. We need to take that out. Um, I think obviously you said there about Man City um, and it's maybe not the most memorable season at the moment. And when they win the league, maybe it's not that memorable. I think the um, the Romelu Lukaku uh, interview, that's all. I think that's absolutely fascinating this week. And Oliver Holt has a good piece in, in the mail about that as well when he gave the interview to, I think it was Sky Sports Italia, almost, uh, you know, trying to save the appetite of Inter Milan fans and say about how maybe he how he loved Inter Milan and he loved the club and maybe didn't rule out coming back. And it's just, there's a fascinating um, fascinating undercurrent to that. It's going go into today's game then as well. And the problems that it's probably created for Thomas Tuchel as well. He wasn't aware of the interview. I believe Lukaku's agent wasn't even aware of the interview. And now he's probably going to have, as Oliver Holt says here, he's probably going to have to give another interview to try and get Chelsea fans back on side. So, and this is coming at the same time as his performances on the pitch have probably you know, gotten back to the levels that he'd like after, after his ankle injury. So that's kind of another fascinating thing. Maybe Man City aren't uh, providing us with you know, too much to analyse or they're, just, they're brilliant maybe leaves us without that much to analyse. But there's definitely... Plenty of other things between VAR, um, the virus, and maybe Lukaku at the moment. We have plenty to talk about. We definitely do. I have a lot of thoughts on Lukaku. But also just to bring you a quick live score update. Brighton have taken an early lead. A goal confirmed by VAR, funnily enough, after our conversation. uh, Alexis McAllister on the score sheet after just three minutes. So not a good start for Everton. 
but the, the Lukaku stuff is just unreal. You know, the fact that no one knew he was doing it, and I'm not sure what he was trying to achieve with it. Uh, is he looking at the end of yeah. the season and saying, I want to go back to Inter, and so I'm going to be really nice to their fans? But even the fact that he had to say sorry to them in the first place probably doesn't bode all that well. And then just angers Chelsea fans who were quite happy to see him come back and give Tuchel a bit more of a headache when it comes to player selection and player, I suppose, like making sure he keeps them all in line. Yeah, he's got a Boris Johnson-esque ability to, to piss everyone off here because he's done is in his attempt to make peace with the Inter fans. And there's a great quote, I don't have the thing in front of me, but from memory it's what the Inter fans have a quote around, you know, we don't remember uh, those who ran away in the rain, we remember those who stayed in the storm or something like that. They have a nice kind of line around players who stay loyal and players who don't. Um, and obviously he's trying to repair his relationship with the Inter fans because he left. But in doing that, he's kind of undermined himself with the Chelsea fans at the same time. So he's managed to alienate himself completely from everyone. So he's might have to find another club. Uh, he might be heading to Spain, I'd say, next after this. But um, the other one that kind of caught my eye, if it's okay, is is um, as a long-suffering um, Manchester United fan, um, is that there's a piece by Jonathan Wilson in the Sunday Indo. It's an it's Observer article, actually, um, and it's in the Sunday Independent. <clears throat> and it, it kind of looks at about the whole, you know, Rangnick uh, appointment or not appointment and the uncertainty that, that, that goes around that. And, you know, as a United fan, you, you always look at Liverpool as the, you know, the benchmark in some respects and how right they seem to have things on the pitch and with their manager. And then you look at United and this is actually a really interesting one because he, he goes through all the mistakes that United have made and all the kind of the calamity of errors that's happened and, you know, around, you know, appointing... Solskjaer, which was the right thing to do after a very kind of acrimonious departure of Jose Mourinho, but then the mistake of giving him the permanent contract when they really didn't need to maybe just let him see out the season. And now they've appointed Rangnick and there's confusion around, is he a consultant? Is he the manager? What's he doing? And, you know, there's one paragraph in here which kind of sums all up for me from a Manchester United perspective, but it's it's around this, you know, the, the limbo uh, does seem to be the club policy at the moment. It felt telling that the Newcastle performance prompted such discontent, both from the body language and the subsequent grumbling. Much of it must stem from the sense of uncertainty. Not for the first time, the United Board has come up with a solution that leaves nobody clear what the plan is. And these are directors with a tendency to react to events. So I, I, I think that's it. That's Man United summed up. You know, it's uncertain. There's no clarity about where the club is going. They, their transfer policy seems absolutely sporadic. Throw money at problems. Um, and they're just making mistake after mistake. So the, the problems there are deep, and it, it does look like no matter who you put in charge, the issues don't really seem to be around the football side of things. The issues seem to be around the whole structure of the club and how the place has been run. And then you compare it to how well run, you know, some of the other clubs are and how much financial clout that they have. It's kind of, you know, it's a pretty kind of long road back for United, you would think, to be a consistent top three, four team even, never mind challenging for the league. I thought it was an interesting comparison in that piece. You know, they made the comparison of appointing Ole Gunnar Solskjaer as interim manager made sense, whereas doing it now doesn't. Yeah. Giving Solskjaer the contract after three months didn't. The permanent contract didn't make sense, whereas maybe that will make a bit more sense here. Uh, I think everyone's kind of questioning the even him saying himself that he wishes that United were progressing further than they actually did. And I think it's probably like you said, it is very much. Uh, a sign of where United are in that I think a lot of fans were quite happy when they got Ranić of the people available 
probably is one of the best options, but he just hasn't seemed to been able to deliver this this stability that I thought I think a lot of players thought that he or a lot of fans thought he was going to bring. And how much can you actually stamp? I don't know how you feel about it, Michael, but how much of your own message, your own style of play, can you stamp on a team when you are just an interim manager like Ranić? Yeah, you're handcuffed a small bit, aren't you, really? Um, and I think that's a big part of it. And we just it just seems like, as Mick said there, they're kind of stumbling from one kind of poor decision to the next. Um, you, you know, they often say, as they often say, like with, with leadership, how does a weak leader look strong? They go and make a big, bold, strong decision. But it doesn't look like there's anybody there making, a, you know, really putting their foot in the ground and making a really strong decision uh, to kind of provide the future with some sort of clarity. Um and it doesn't look like it kind of looks like they're kind of stumbling from not from one mess to another, but they're stumbling from a, la- a lack of clarity to they're getting even more unclear, I suppose, as things go on. Um, there were, as, as Mick said there, Mick just talked about you wanted to talk about United there. I just want to bring up one little piece that we uh, had mentioned just when we were previewing the papers. Uh, I love a bit of nostalgia just looking back on it's 30 years on from the night Wrexham uh, beat Arsenal in the FA Cup. A uh, really good piece here with Mickey Thomas, he was the one of the heroes of the hour. Um, just such an interesting piece. As we look at the FA Cup now, we probably maybe don't associate it with the, the fairy tales that we would have many, many moons ago. But uh, Arsenal were 1 0 up uh, playing at, at Wrexham that night and looked in complete control. And Mickey Thomas scored a free kick, and then two minutes later, uh, they got the winner. But just some really interesting context to it. Just says eight eight days. It's a piece by Ian Herbert and Nathan Salt. Um, it just says eight days after his searing free kick for Wrexham held sink Arsenal in that third round tie on January fourth, nineteen ninety two. Mickey Thomas was arrested for his part uh, in a counterfeit money scam. He ran out for the fourth round at West Ham to a ticker tape welcome of Monopoly money. Um, just some great details <laughs> that you would that you would forget. I was I was only I think six at the time. Um, but when you look back. Uh, and the BBC would do, you know, greatest FA Cup shocks. This would always be one that that would spring to mind. Um, it was, I think, it was the, as it says here in the piece. It says the golfing class, the football league's best versus the football league's worst of 1991, contributed substantially to the occasion. Half an hour before kickoff, the mood in Wrexham's dressing room seemed so oppressive that Davies wandered uh, over to the tea urn filled the plastic cup with tea and walked back to his seat pretending to shake the cup and spill the water all over the place. I'm an experienced player and I'm not nervous at all, he declared. The dressing room dissolved into laughter. There was an experienced dressing room at Wrexham um, and he was just trying to, suppose, maybe lighten the mood before what would be one of the biggest shocks in, in cup history. And Mick, I know you have good memories of, of that shock as well and I know you like that piece as well. Yeah, no, I I do, and I, I suppose I I am actually old enough, unfortunately, to remember that game, <laughs> and um, and a couple of things spring to mind. I I actually had no recollection of of the money, uh, the, the counterfeit money scam, um, at all. I do remember his goal. <clears throat> In my mind, though, his goal was the winner. It actually wasn't. It was the equaliser, which I only have to read in this piece. It's funny how your mind plays tricks on you, but you just a couple of things. One is that the FA Cup. And how kind of important it was in the whole calendar. And as a kid and watching football, um, Wrexham beating Arsenal, it was like bottom of the bottom versus top of the top. And, you know, that would probably never happen again. Right. So there's there's that as well. Even with teams putting out second teams, you can't see a team from the bottom of what was the old fourth division beating a team at the top, like Man City going and losing to Hartlepool or something like it just wouldn't happen. Um that's one thing that 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 I've kind of yeah you know kind of jumps out at you. Um, and secondly, I didn't realise as well like Arsenal done the win the cup the following year 
Um, and they kind of used that as motivation to go on. They had a brilliant team at the time. Alan Smith and Paul Merson and Tony Adams and all these guys like who went on to win, you know, Premier Leagues later on in their careers as well. But it's a really good, it's a really good nostalgia piece. Um, and if you if you have a chance and people are flicking through, it's actually worth worth the read ahead of the FA Cup, which I think, you know, obviously everyone appreciates has been hugely devalued. Um, the other one I think, sorry if I can, is is just um just a small thing. Um there's a lot of stuff around Stephen Kenny and you know, this whole will he, will he, won't he get it, you know, how long will his contract be and all this kind of stuff and, um, you know, the kind of test that he has next year. But there's one about Seamus Coleman, and I didn't realise this either, um, that he's getting a bit of stick from Everton fans, which I, I, I thought would be highly unfair considering um, how much of a loyal servant he's been um, and famously got there for 60 grand or whatever they paid for him back many years ago, probably the best value ever Everton have had, which I thought was interesting. And he, look, you, you think a guy like that will, will come through that but um, yeah, I just thought, geez, I never, never knew the Everton fans would turn on, on a kind of a club legend like that, which I thought was interesting as well. I think it speaks to the general frustration that there is around Everton at the moment with how mm. they're performing. I mean, so, just uh, conceding a goal to Brighton after just three minutes probably sums it up. And I think they're just, from what I've seen of the criticism of Coleman, it, it is unfair, I think, especially when you look at the sort of injury run he has had. He's never really been the same since the leg break he had and you would wonder are Everton kind of looking at maybe winding down the legend a little bit and getting someone in to replace him just one quick score update before we dive into that a little bit more but Aston Villa are 1-0 up against Brentford uh, Danny Ings after 16 minutes so they're just all those games are just heading into their 20th minute but I don't know how you feel about that do you think that this is kind of the winding down of Coleman and maybe something that if the fans are turning on him in the way that they seem to be again I would agree with unfairly that it's time for him to start looking for a new opportunity yeah I I, I, I think you're probably right I, I I think the frustration of the Everton fans is probably more around a general frustration and they're looking for scapegoats and I think you know a player in his latter years who's maybe aging and mistakes are probably creeping into the game they're probably more exposed young players and older players probably more exposed you know, at when 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 there's ships are kind of leaking rather than sinking, as as seems to be the case. But um, I would have thought Coleman, you know, when he came back from that injury, he lost that kind of spark of you know that real up and down dynamic right wing back. Um, but I think he got it back, and I I got some of it back anyway. But look, it's probably inevitability about aging limbs, and you know, but he's the kind of guy you think would do a job for them, and for the, you know for the next kind of year or two. Um, but maybe he needs to move on, um, uh, and, and 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 maybe it's just one of those ones that time has caught up with him, you know. Yeah, I think there's a lot of frustration around Everton at the moment, and there's possible. I think there is a possibility that he is getting some of the stick. There has been some bad misses and some bad like missed tackles by him in some recent matches, and with the way that even the manager stability, the losing big players at unfortunate times, everything just seems to have been going against Everton players. Really, so I hear from my Everton supporting dad who uh, does not let a day go by where he doesn't discuss how unhappy he is with how the team is performing. Uh, one piece that I really I enjoyed, and I just thought it brought up a, 
like an interesting point was Jonathan Liu talking about the Arsenal game yesterday. Obviously, Jonathan Liu's writing is always very flourishing, and I think he could even make the most boring game sound like the most exciting in the world. But a point he brought up was about Bikayo Saka and the love that there is for him, not just among Arsenal fans, but love for him generally around England. I'm sure most Premier League teams don't want to see him scoring against him. But he just pointed out that has there ever been a person who misses the crucial penalty that he did in a European Championship final and has gone on to be so loved? I mean, we're so used to seeing players make mistakes or do bad things and they get turned into a meme or a punchline. I mean, the famous Manchester United apology tweets and Instagrams, the Harry Maguire ones in particular were always quite entertaining. What is it about Saka that he's managed to avoid this, Michael? Yeah, it's a sign of the man, isn't it? Because as you say, uh, usually uh, you would go the other way and say you'd be, uh, you know, you'd be the, a point of uh, a lot of amusement for an awful lot of people, or you'd be the brunt of a joke for an awful lot of people. Uh, shows how respected he is, and showed how loved how loved he is, and it's um, it's an amazing it's an amazing thing, really. And I'm sure I don't know if if he's talked about it much or whether he's opened up on, you know. Was there anything in particular he did, uh, maybe mentally, to get over that penalty miss? But he definitely has bounced back in spectacular fashion, really. And as you say, um, he's definitely a player that no team wants to uh, no team wants to see their net hit by him because it just seems to, to give uh, it seems to be such a lift for them. So it's a, it's an amazing thing, really. Um, uh, the psychology of it all, I find I find fascinating, and it's definitely something I'd love to hear more from him about because. Uh, his bounce back ability is remarkable, really. Yeah, I think he stayed fairly quiet. Though, on he, it he, so he, doesn't for, he doesn't play for Manchester United, though, <laughs> <laughs> which helps. Like, I, I, I think a lot of the blame and that penalty shootout was put on the manager um, in terms of the choice of players put forward to take a penalty. And if you remember back again, showing my age here, but Stuart Pearce and Gareth Southgate um, are two players I remember who took years. Chris Waddle was another. We followed him around for years. Like, remember, do... remember Waddle missing a penalty for Sheffield Wednesday uh, midweek in the FA Cup, and he was actually—you could see how mentally uh, tortured he was by it all. He never even wanted to take another penalty. Yeah, but like these guys were like, it stuck with them forever. And you know, I—I I, I think in this instance, I think he was a young kid who was probably put into a very difficult situation. Um, and while it was one of the most important kicks he'll ever take. I think the kind of people gave him the benefit of the doubt. Look, he was only a teenager and he stepped up and took a penalty. But I think the question is more, and why would you put him forward to do that and put that kind of pressure on him? Um, whether he scored him every day in training or not, it's a completely different situation. You'd expect one of your more senior players to step up in that situation. So I think he got the benefit of the doubt. He, even afterwards, it was more around Rashford and Sancho. I thought they were kind of getting the, kind of the, fing, the, the finger of blame. But again, they play for another club up the road. So maybe that was part of it. Yeah, when you guys were speaking about the Mickey Thomas piece, I didn't want to be the one to jump in and mention that that was a few years before I was even born. (laughs) But a very good piece, and I enjoyed a lot of the details around it. Um, I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, that's the thing about Saka, and I think a lot of people see him as kind of leading the the new generation of Arsenal along with Emil Smith-Rowe. I think they might need a, a few players more if they are actually going to achieve that. But I thought it was interesting, Jonathan Liu kind of putting that sphere around it and saying that you know if he can get past that psychological trauma of taking one of the most important kicks of his life and 
can start doing what he is for Arsenal this season, then maybe it is a hint of the resurgence that might come to the club. Although I think the Arsenal have about five different resurgences per season and then about five different more <laughs> drops. Um, moving on from the Premier League, there was a really good piece in the Sunday Times um, from West Cork on the Ohadown Metal Factory talking to Emily Hegarty and Fintan McCarthy on their Tokyo success and just generally about how the rowing club down in Skibbereen nurtured them I suppose over the years to their victories. I just loved the idea of her parents picking there is painted in the piece the image of her parents picking them both up from the airport you know you wouldn't get two cars coming up all the way to Dublin you get the one car going up pick the two you up and them coming with the medals around and not being able to get through Skibbereen I mean it's not a particularly big town but it taking them hours because the word had quietly gone out that they were coming home so a really nice piece there yeah I think it's it was it was fascinating just to Fintan McCarthy had obviously had one of the biggest things, probably the biggest thing that's ever going to happen in his life, and it hasn't changed him at all. Obviously, if he's just going to jump into the back of a car and just sit there as the kind of the humble fella that he is, and it just shows that it hadn't changed him at all. I think it's fascinating. Um, I'd hear about Skibbereen Rowing Club, and that's kind of what you focus. That's what you kind of focus the the Irish rowing revolution around, and then you realise if you like dig down and burrow a bit closer that they're all essentially from the same kind of townsland, which is mad to kind of think as well. Just going through it here, a piece by Dennis Walsh, he just says, uh, the revolution in Irish rowing is forever associated with Skibbering Rowing Club and on the water, that is the vest they wear. But Hegarty and McCarthy, his twin brother, Jake, the O'Donovan brothers, Gary and Paul, the master coach, Dominic Casey, and his daughter, Aoife, all come from Aha Down, a rural parish with two churches, two primary schools, and a flourishing colony, colony of rowing champions. It's just amazing to think, like, uh, has there ever been uh, a place where more champions have been produced from such a small place? It's fascinating to think. And just even when they went to school in Kilcoe, Kilcoe National School, the numbers were so small that ages were borderless. McCarthy and Hegarty were in the same schoolroom from second to fourth class, despite being two years apart in school. And... The numbers were so small in the school that everybody had to get to know each other because if they wanted to play games, be it soccer or whatever, they had to include everybody basically if they wanted numbers to make teams. And uh, I just think it was it was fascinating how they were exposed to exposed to rowing as kind of like an introductory course that they give them when they're in school. And the Fintan McCarthy actually went away from rowing in his teens for a while. Uh, Emily Hegarty had a great line. Just where she's saying, uh, I think it was, or was it her that was saying that she basically wasn't good at, enough at anything else. She said, uh, I was chronic at everything else, so I was kind of happy that I was good at something. Just that she tried all the other sports and basically that rowing was her calling. There's an awful lot, there's an awful lot to this piece. Um, mm. And I think even fascinating again is Emily Hegarty talks about the almost like the lull after the Olympics. So I can't imagine for an Olympic athlete. Your focus is all on, you know, it's a four-year cycle. You're focusing on, uh, be it Tokyo last year or Paris uh, in a couple of in a couple of years' time. Like, what's the drop-off like after that? When you win or lose, I'd imagine there's a massive drop-off or a massive lull. And she just talks about that. Um, everyone with experience will always say that there'll be a period when you'll feel not even down, but like a readjustment period. They tried to prepare us as best they could for that, but I don't think you realise what it's like until you're there, uh, Kate, Kate Kirby, the sports psychologist, is very good at guiding me through that. You're so tunnel vision for this one thing. Tokyo has been number one in my mind for the past three years. I came home and it was like, what now? 
you know, it was like, it's over. What am I supposed to do with myself? It was just about trying to find new goals and getting back into the swing of things. It was a massive challenge. Good few of my friends have graduated from college now. It was a weird time. I wouldn't say it was extremely bad or anything. It was just a period of being a bit lost for a while. And I'd say, like, it's hard for many other athletes to compare with that. You know, Premier League uh, soccer players, you know, they have a, you know, a small window where they shut off at the end of each season and they reboot. GA players are the same. For Olympic athletes, I'd imagine the build-up to that big crescendo of the Olympics and then the massive drop-off for that, even if you're a, a medal winner. Um, and I just thought that was really, really fascinating. Yeah, it was a good piece. Just to bring one, I actually have a few thoughts on it, but just a quick goal update. Uh, <laughs> Everton are now 2-0 down against Brighton. Dan Byrne has scored in the 21st minute. Those games are just going into the 30-minute mark. One thing I thought was interesting from the uh, down piece was the fact that they both tried to explain how difficult their training schedule is and how difficult it is to get to that level. I think they said that they train six or six and a half days per week, nap in afternoons. Their diet, the, even their diets are governed by uh, contract, like a binding contract. So there's no element of their lives that isn't in control and. It is interesting as well, the light that they cast on it, because they were kind of saying, you know, in most years you would have quite a lot of FOMO, but this year they got to go to the Olympics. Mm. Most of their friends were sitting at home not doing anything because of COVID anyways. So there wasn't the same sort of want or will to be out doing other stuff. It was just Tokyo. It was just that focus. That was all they had. Yeah, I I, I I think this is a brilliant article. I, I When you read it again, you know, you look back at it, you've touched on a lot of the points there, but like there's there's a lot in it. Like there's a lot of different plots in this. I think one thing that Jump said to me is in a different year where you didn't have Rachel Blackmore, Kelly Harrington and all this other stuff going on, I think the Rovers would have been the outstanding achievement of, of the year. And there's a little bit that it's kind of been lost in such a successful, busy year for Irish sport. Um, also, I think if you're into sports psychology at all, and why winners become winners. If you read books like Bounce or Outliers and other books on sports psychology, like how did this very small pocket of a small pocket of Ireland, which is what it is, produce so many people in, in a tradition of, of at a very high standard and international level, right? And I think Michael touched on it there, you know, um, and I thought this was really interesting. There's two parts to this. One is the rowing club going out and doing this introductory course for primary school kids. So it's almost like this come and try thing and kids coming in and trying um, rowing and getting a love for it at an early age. And, you know, from a minority sport perspective, and I hate saying that word, I think this is a really interesting blueprint for people to go out and actually bring the sport to the kids because the two guys talk about it as well, um, Vincent and, and Emily, about how they didn't really take the GEA or soccer or other things and they weren't particularly good at something else. And their brothers and sisters were out playing and they kind of weren't really doing anything, but they latched onto this sport. So, I think there's a lesson for all of us in here and people who have kids as well. You know, if they're not into GA and soccer or rugby or whatever, the dominant sports, it doesn't mean there's not something else out there for your kid or for other kids like that. So, you know, there's just so many kids playing all those other sports that maybe your kid has a natural inclination towards a tennis or or rowing or or whatever it is. And only that that club went and found these kids, they probably wouldn't have played any sport. And like these weren't naturally gifted sports stars who would have taken up anything and won, and won everything, which sometimes you kind of feel when you look at these Olympic medalists, which is the highest standard of, of a sport, right? So, you know, I, I think the, the lesson here in, in this first piece is, you know, there's something for you. If you're not particularly brilliant at the, the, the main field sports, you could be brilliant at something else. And 
then they get into that routine and that's the routine that they talk about at the end around that training six days a week getting back in the kind of the almost the, the therapy and doing the same thing and that and that kind of routine thing that they that they spoke about the other thing that jumped out of me is the role of kate kirby um and again looking back at the expectation i haven't experienced this from an irish perspective where an irish team or person goes into a final i think katie taylor in london 2012 was the only other one where they went into a final and everyone said like get the party ready you know um she's going to win and the massive pressure that goes on that and how people sometimes don't react to that and you forget with the two lads going into the rowing final everyone had them nailed on to win like there wasn't any like doubt but they were up against two or three other boats that probably felt they had the same chance so managing that expectation i think he, he also touched on that really well um and one point you made as well around um athletes that transition out of an olympics you know did a bit of work on this recently a, a number of olympic cycles ago where Sport Ireland and the Institute of Sport and the government here in fairness have really got their head around this when particularly in an amateur sport where you're not necessarily known to the greater public it's a very unusual cycle to go straight go from you know relative unknown there's a little bit of pre-olympic build-up and then into kind of superstar for a short period of time and then you're gone which kind of happens sometimes with these sports and it's not like soccer or GA or rugby where you go into a pre-season and then you're about the other side so helping people come down off that high of an olympics and athletes do suffer with that transition as they call it mental health challenges that come with that um and i think having a quick three-year turnaround the focus will, will turn quite quickly they're only a couple of years out now from from paris so that's going to help some of them but they touch on i think here not all the guys are back um which would give you a sense of some of them are probably going to pack it in but you know i think it's important that sports and that that the, the authorities throw their arms around these athletes when they come back because there's this massive sugar rush and then there's this complete kind of go back to doing your own thing and going back to college and that kind of stuff um, and helping people through all that so that they can cope with normality again, one of a better way of saying it. And they might have to build themselves back up again for that kind of shot in the arm of, of, of superstardom again. I think this Olympic cycle in particular, it brought a lot of interesting talk around the psychological elements because I did a bit of work on it um, with just chatting to some of the Team GB athletes initially when the olympics was postponed and how do you like mentally prepare yourself for that and then again afterwards with it coming through how do you actually mentally prepare for an olympics and covid and coming out of it and knowing that you have a much shorter cycle than you've been used to before and in some cases it seemed to be almost a situation where because the last few years have been so bad with covid the hardest part was not having the Olympics the first year and then going into it this the year that it did happen, which was last year. Um, athletes were, they said it was probably the most mentally prepared they've ever been for anything in their life because the worst had happened. You know, it had been delayed. Everything they had been working for for four years, every, all their training set up for those four-year cycles. It was done. It had happened. And even when it was over, they had a lot more tools to work with than they ever had before which I thought was a really interesting take that it could go from the absolute worst to I suppose long term being beneficial but probably the sort of thing that you experience a lot of time if you can mentally take yourself through a really difficult time it does serve you better in the long run um, I know I used to spend a lot of summers down in West Cork and it was just interesting we would always have been in Baltimore rather than Skibbereen or Down, but it most of the kids that you would meet there is kind of like what you were saying Mick would do loads of different sports that you wouldn't necessarily expect it's not the rugby or the football or the soccer or the GA they're out rowing they're sailing 
making use of the elements that they have at their disposal and like you said you just think that if more schools went out and did what Skibbery Rowing Club did what more could we what medals could we be expecting in four eight ten years out of the kids that are now in like primary school or secondary school well there's so many kids that, like Cork's a brilliant sports county right there's so much going on but a lot of the kids as you say like you look at that Cork ladies football team that won all those All-Irelands in a row and a lot of them were champion basketball players, road bowlers, you know, hurlers, camogie players, whatever else you have in yourself. Like they were, they were brilliant, talented sports people. But I, I do think if if there was more funding in place, and it, like it obviously comes down to what happens at local local level. But like, how many kids might become shot putters or boxers, or you know, if they got given a chance to do it at an early age? Because there's only 15 guys or girls can talk out for the county, and the rare ones go up and play international rugby and whatever. So. There's a lot of other sports out there that could learn from what Skibbereen Rowing Club have done and building that connection because it's all about the primary schools and it's what the GEA have been brilliant at is linking the, the, the coming in one school and the, the, the primary school football and hurling up to the club structure um, and they're past masters at it. So, you know, if the blueprint is there. If you go into the primary schools and you, you give a kid a love of a sport, you know, you'll get it back in spades. And there's only, and it said like, not every kid is going to find his way or her way when you go down GA training there's 40, 50 kids and look it's brilliant and, and all the kids can get to play and all that but there are there's there should be room for everybody even if you're not particularly gifted at, at, at the field sports you might be brilliant at rowing or sailing or something else and I know they're kind of capital intensive sports to play because you need a boat and that kind of thing but that's where the club comes in and if the club can throw their arms around these kids I think it'd be fantastic yeah, one of the best pieces, I, I think that was probably one of the best pieces I read across the papers this morning. But I also really enjoyed the interview with uh, Una Lisi from Arlok Nabala uh, by Philip Flanagan in the Irish Mail on Sunday. I was reading it and holding my knee in pain at what she has gone through to just keep playing. Uh, Mick, I know this is one that you particularly enjoyed as well. <laughs> yeah, this is, a, this is a brilliant piece. And I think it probably went under the radar a bit. Uh, just because of its proximity to Christmas and the fact that it was the 2020 uh, All-Ireland Camogie Championship and maybe not the 2021 Championship. But Aulert de Bala uh, winning the All-Ireland Camogie title was definitely one from left field. I'd say if you'd talk to anybody, even locally, they probably would have said that Aulert de Bala's probably best days, even within Wexford, had passed. Yeah, you, you know, all these legends, uh, the Lacey's, uh, Ursula Jacob, uh, and many more, and they managed to pull it all together for an All Ireland run, a Leinster run, and then an All Ireland run. And when you go through, uh, when you go through Nulacy's story here, it's just it's phenomenal, really. Even what she went through personally. I I saw the picture um, in the aftermath of the club final of her uh, asleep in an ice a uh, hotel ice chamber, um, and I I wasn't I obviously. You obviously see different sacrifices that people have made, but then when you read her full backstory and you realise the amount of hardship she's had with her knees and probably the amount of hardship uh, over the next few years she's probably going to have with them and what she did to play in the final before scoring a hat-trick is it's phenomenal, really. Just There's some great lines in this. Uh, Philip Lanigan just talks about the, the battle of wounded knee. Um, he talks about Una Lacey's fractured right knee dating back to when she was as young as 11. The wear and tear since uh, that has left her with no cartilage Add in the double trauma of twice doing the cruciate in her left and then doing more ligament damage during this year's club championship. It took a hyperarchic oxygen chamber to not only reverse her retirement plans, but give her a fighting chance of talking out in the All-Ireland series. So probably, like, unless you were very close to the Euler de Bala camp, you wouldn't have realised that, like, Una Lacey was nearly as good as retired 
after the Leinster final when they beat Thomastown uh, and it was only uh, some advice uh, by Colin Sunderland who basically told her to get into this hotel ice chamber. She went in there, I think, five days in a row, started feeling an awful lot uh, better as a result. But I don't think anybody thought she was had much of a realistic chance of playing against Schlock Neal in the All-Ireland semi-final. And just a big thing on that as well, like beating Schlock Neal in the semi-final was a massive upset. Beating Sarsfield in the All-Ireland final was a massive upset. Um, and it, the, the amount that she went through personally to play a massive part and then even collectively as a, t- as a team, um, I just think, I think it's gas. They talk about um, there was a wedding the night before the final um, and it was actually one, one of the players, uh, Stacey Kyo, was getting married the night before. So the vast majority of the squad went to the wedding and uh, I think Una Lacey said when she left at half nine, she went home and she was still getting Snapchats of uh, of Stacey Kyo still dancing at 11 o'clock and thereafter and then Stacey Kyo gets uh, player of the match in the All-Ireland the day after it's just it's it's a mad kind of sequence of events um, I've been part of teams as I'm sure you have at different times where you're told oh you can't do this you can't do that you'll be uh, tired for tomorrow you can't go to this the week before a match or you can't do X, Y and Z it'll have a, either a mental or physical effect on you and the Owlert women just ripped up the script in, in, in every way possible um, there's there's so there's so much to this as well. Like uh, Stacey Kyo has, I think she has she's two kids as well, um, uh, and she just like that wouldn't stop her playing. There's a quote here just from Moon and Lacey. She just said she's a two year old son as well. She said her two year old son Mike was on hand to share in the celebrations after the final whistle, and she says it was special to have that family dimension with Mary as captain. That's her sister, particularly given her sister had only given birth to her second child in July. New baby Matthew becoming a brother to three year old Jake before returning to tog out the very next month. So like that's 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 phenomenal in itself. Like um. Uh, you know the vast majority of players would be forced into retirement having having a child, and that just shows the mentality of the two laces in particular. Anyway, uh, that they just wouldn't take no for an answer. But there's just a fascinating amount in this, and just to get the backstory to her career, she was told to try and play in goals this year, and she just said, "No way, I'm I'm going to play in the forward line." And uh, she did whatever she had to do to do it, and it's amazing that they that they got the rewards after. Yeah, you're right. There is so much packed into this piece. Um, and I like I was just amazed at how the dedication not only from her to get back on the pitch, but also the fact that they had to fight to even play the matches in the first place. You know, like you said, it was a delayed 2020 pandemic. It was originally cancelled and then it was reinstated because of the protests from the players. A quick goal update. Jack Harrison has given Leeds United the lead on the 39th minute against Burnley and same all round the houses still Everton 2-0 down against Brighton and Aston Villa 1-0 up against Brentford I thought what was really nice about this piece as well was the the ode to her family it was you know her mum Margaret obviously a very very great player herself in her day and she sadly lost her father Maddie two years ago who would have been a big support to her and she talks about it here that whenever she was going to matches with her dad he would say okay today 20 euro a goal for every goal you get 20 euro and she's saying, you know, as a 17, 18, 19 year old, 20 quid is <laughs> quite, quite the fee. And he would always pay up as well. She said he would never leave her no matter what. And that the players were joking with her after the match and her hat trick that her dad would have been without a few quid after that day. But I think it's nice the the credit that she pays to both of them in the piece um, and what they have done for her game. And also just even talking about how Kamogi has sustained her mum through the time with after the loss of her dad. 
Yeah, I, I, I think, look, this this article kind of has the whole bingo card full of stuff. You know, you, you need a degree in medicine to get through it first because there's so many different injuries and operations and meniscuses and cartilages and everything missing here. So, um, and it's a real tale of, of, you know, there's a bit of personal loss, obviously, in here. There's the whole resilience with injury. There's the wedding. There's coming back the team, coming back from a few years in the wilderness and, you know, it's a it's a nice flow of, of an article. I, I I think what jumped out at me in the end was, um, and you just touched on it there was, you know, Camogie in in parts of Ireland and part and community where Camogie is strong, like it's a almost like a religion, and you would just wonder, you know, it was that kind of in the blood, you know, hurling Camogie in the blood in that part of of Wexford was that what really kind of drove her through all that adversity and talking about the mom and what it means to the family. And she talks about, you know, the, the, the closing in winter nights and how important it was for them to have camogie in their lives. And she talks about, you know, um, going into the local shop. There's always somebody talking about camogie or Ireland. And, you know, all that, I think, shows you in this instance, and particularly at club level, the importance of family, as you said, and that tradition been handed down from, you know, father, mom to kids, uh, and also the importance of community when it comes to kind of galvanizing that team. And I, I wouldn't underestimate that. And that to me, that last bit of that article, which Philip Lanigan does really well, um, I think really sums it up for me in terms of how she probably found that inner strength to get onto the pitch, never mind, never mind playing an active part in, in, winning, in, in winning those um, championships. Yeah, she pays credit to a lot of people in the piece, very much seems to be one of those people who has dedicated her entire life to the sport, but passes it on to other people. You know, when she was talking about her goals, she talks about Ursula Jacobs and Kern, like for actually getting the ball to her in the first place. So she also pays um, tribute to a lot of the members of the club who'd passed away during the year and saying that how much it meant to them. You know, there was club president Jimmy Bolger and then there was also... Uh, Phil Redmond who has been to basically every match I think she said in the game so it's nice that it feels like this is something that she does for herself but also very much for the community for the people around her Uh, even if I think was her brother-in-law said to her that in 20 years time she doesn't want to be pushing her around in a wheelchair on family holidays (laughs) Uh, quick goal update Uh, Brentford have equalised Yon Wissa has scored there after 42 minutes so that is Brentford 1 Aston Villa 1 um another great piece that we had was um about horse doping and that one was interesting because it went into a lot of the like you said you almost would need a bit of a medical degree to properly understand what was being uh said in it there was a lot of um technical terms there was a lot of went into like a lot of drugs was David Walsh in the Sunday Times kind of focusing on George Navarro who was uh, found guilty recently of doping his horses quite the success he had in his career I think over 1,224 races he made 34.8 million uh, the details in the piece are just so interesting I'll admit it wasn't a case that I knew it was ongoing but I don't think I paid attention to the details of it as much um, he kept clogs in the barn with custom printed juice man by his team so it doesn't sound like something they were necessarily hiding too much but I think the thing that 
was interesting from the judge was uh, Mary Kay Baskell. She very much was focused on the element of how he had treated the horses and not so much just the financial element of how much money he had made off the thing. It was that he had, I think he'd been, one of his associates had been caught on a wiretap saying that they had killed horses and there was that element and the mistreatment of them that he she really focused on when handing down her five-year term she even said that if she had had the option she would have given him a longer term sentence uh her judgment was for years mr navarro you've effectively stole millions cheating other trainers owners and jockeys you competed against you also demonstrated a collective callous disregard for the well-being of the horses the bottom line is you likely killed or endangered the horses in your care. The reality is someone who loves horse who loves horses does not subject them to such cruel and dangerous treatment. So very strong words from her there. And a piece is just kind of generally looking at the issue of doping in the sport. Uh, Michael, I know you had some thoughts on this. Yeah, no, a very interesting piece from, from David Walsh. I suppose there's so many things going on um, in the world of sport and some things when it goes to court and that maybe it can be maybe too technical and we end up kind of getting lot getting clouded in all the detail but i think you've broken it down really really well here just one thing i would like to say that that george navarro like and people that you know are doping horses and obviously horses that are getting killed as a result of that that they are the minority the vast vast majority of people involved in racing absolutely love horses and treat them unbelievably well i've been to so many yards up and down the country where like it's they're the equivalent of five-star hotels that the horses are being looked after so uh, guys like this uh, it must be stated are, are in the minority um but I, I do think it's an interesting one david walsh was on on sky sports racing today talking about it as well just the the it's the wet it's more the the doping uh, problem is obviously massive and that needs to be talked about as well but it's the welfare the welfare piece is probably the most important aspect of this and that horses are uh, being cared for uh, during their uh, racing careers and after their racing careers. And I know with the with the Panorama documentary earlier on this year, that was maybe, or, or last year, I should say, that was probably uh, in bright focus. But it, I think it does have to be stated that the vast, vast majority of people in racing treat their horses so well. Uh, I've never seen, like, and pe- people would often say to me, you know, like, you know, do horses like doing what they're doing they love doing what they're doing they are bred to race and they absolutely love to race and the amount of horses that are uh, uh retrained and sent off to do different kind have different kind of lives after racing that kind of needs to be um put front and center as well but this is a, a very uh troubling case and i think when you look at the uh, bob baffert case which is ongoing in the states at the moment as well uh it's definitely uh something that is front and center in u.s racing and it doesn't look like it's going away anytime soon uh so definitely would keep 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 an eye keep an eye on this and i'm sure in fairness to david and even paul kimmage recently they're really getting stuck into some of racing's uh maybe are kind of murkier problems and i think uh they're doing a, a great service by doing so because at the end of the day the welfare of the horse uh, is number one yeah, I think what was great about this piece was it put a lot of the more technical stuff into context. So if you're not necessarily a horse racing fan, you know, it went through some of the drugs that Navarro used on horses and put them in the context of they were similar to the ones used by the likes of Lance Armstrong. And I think after cases like that, people are always very aware of 
what what the effects are and then also like talking about how it actually affects the horse how like some of these drugs well they may be okay to use on humans obviously in certain dosages and rights they have a very different effect on the horses which isn't something that you know most people unless you're very involved in the sport would be aware of so i think that was interesting from his side and um, thank you both for joining me today to go through all the papers. It was lovely to speak to you and I really enjoyed dissecting them all and wish you both a very happy new year. I hope you get thank to you. go and have a restful day. I know you had children in the pool early this morning, so hopefully you'll be able to have a nice chill for the rest of your Sunday. Thank you very much. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks Matt. Thank you. you. Just to put in a record, New Year's resolutions don't start till after the bank holiday, right? That's oh, the, of course, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just to make sure you can have a drink tonight. That's all right. And now we're going to go to those Premier League games. Um, lots of goals around the place. First up, we have Nigel Bigmead at Brentford versus Aston Villa. Brentford won, Aston Villa won. The visitors took the lead on 16 through Danny Ings. A really well-worked goal involving Buendia and Douglas Luiz. Ings on his left foot shot across the goalkeeper to give Villa a deserved lead. They were in complete control of the game until 42. And then Johan Visa collected across from the right-hand side and with his left foot beat the Aston Villa goalkeeper with a bending shot against the run of play. 1-1 here at the Brentford Community Stadium. A difficult afternoon for Everton so far. Shane Pennington is at that match versus Brighton. It's Everton nil, Brighton two, and the home side have booed off a half time. Rafa Benitez side have been really poor in this first half. Brighton on the other side have been absolutely superb. They lead courtesy of two goals in the space of the opening 20 minutes. The first came on three minutes when Alexis McAllister swatted home after Neil Mope had cushioned out a lovely header from a Veltman cross. And then on 21 minutes, it was two, a simple one this time. McAllister's corner headed on the near post by Mwepu and Dan Byrne heading home from six yards out. Then Everton thought they had a chance to get back into the game when John Brooks, the referee, went over to the monitor to have a look at a possible penalty. He gave that penalty after Mwepo was brought down uh, Gordon in the area. Dominic Calvert-Lewin back in the side uh, since August for the first time. Stepped up to take the penalty and skied it high over the bar. And that pretty much summed up Everton's first half. Everton nil, Brighton 2. And finally for our 2 o'clock kickoffs, we have Leeds versus Burnley with Derek Clark. Half-time, Leeds United 1, Burnley nil. a Jack Harrison goal in 39 minutes is a difference in what's been a frenetic first half at a wet Ellen Road. He capitalised on a mistake from James Tarkowski. His first shot was parried by Hennessy, but he made no mistake with the rebound. The hosts have had a number of opportunities. Roberts has had two chances. Rafinha and Furple have also come close. Chris Woods had Burnley's best opportunities in the first half. His first was saved by Melier, and on the stroke of half-time, he's just fired over half-time. Leeds United 1, Burnley nil. So there you have it, all the excitement of some very unhappy Everton fans, I imagine, around the place, but tightly poised in all the other games. Uh, coming up after the break, we will have Gavin Duffy on to talk about Connacht versus Munster last night. Connacht running out 10-8 winners, so it'll be interesting to dive into that with him. And we will also have some highlights from our Golf Weekly. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball.